Welcome to the Defense and Aerospace Report Business Roundtable. I'm your host, Vago Muradian. Our podcast is brought to you by Bell. Since 1935, Bell has been redefining flight. Learn more about its pioneering spirit at bellflight.com. The U.S. economy continues to grow with more than 350,000 new jobs, even lower unemployment, and even declining inflation. All eyes are on whether the Fed is going to make good on its promise to cut rates this year. Boeing suspends financial guidance for 2024, as management says they will focus on improving the quality of the company's products. The company also withdrew its request for a limited exemption for the 737 MAX 7 engine inlet de-icing system. We'll talk more about that. The European Union approves a four-year $54 billion economic aid package for Ukraine, and Washington clears 40 F-16s for Turkey uh, in the wake of Ankara's approval of Sweden's NATO membership and the same number of F-35s for Greece. Joining us today to discuss all this and more are Dr. Rocketron Epstein of Bank of America Securities, Sash Tusa of the independent equity research firm Agency Partners in London, and Richard Abalafi of the Aerodynamic Advisory Consultancy here in Washington, D.C. Uh, everybody, welcome back to the program. Hope um, everybody had a great uh, week, a lovely week in Washington. Uh, Ron, Uh, Another big week, big jobs numbers, uh, dropping unemployment, inflation is also coming down. A growing number of economists are now beginning to suggest that it's it's not like a soft landing. There might not really be a landing at all. The Fed is uh, taking a wait and see approach uh, on whether or not deciding for the interim to keep rates where they are as opposed to uh, cutting them. Their focus was finding inflation, right? So if inflation isn't as big of a problem, you might actually see some rate cuts. you're not the bank's chief economist, right? But how does this play into the emerging consensus on the street? And what does that mean for the group? Yeah, so, I mean, if you if you think about the consensus on the street yeah, last year, let's start there. Coming into the year, everybody said we were going to have a recession. We didn't. Coming into this year, everybody said we're not going to have a recession. So who knows what's going to happen? Um, and it, I think there's maybe broad confusion over kind of where what's next, where are things going? Um, you know, just Ron's opinion here. It's because we've never been through one of these things, you know, and hopefully we won't go through another pandemic for a while. Um, so, you know, the, the the economic community is kind of, you know, you know, just calling it as they see it, when they see it, and a lot of it's in real time. So we'll see where it all goes. I mean, clearly those economic numbers were, were encouraging. Um, that probably does imply, again, Ron's view, not the bank's view, that, you know, the Fed probably doesn't have to cut anytime soon. Because the economy is doing just fine, right? And um, right. It, it gives them latitude for when the economy is not doing fine to actually cut, right? So um, that be that as it may, uh, the S&P on the week was up uh, a little over 1%, about 1 and a third percent, 1.3%. Um, and then you know, our, our world in that, within that, um, Boeing reported this week, it was up a little bit above the market, just under 2%. Right. Um, Spirit Aerosystems, which tends to be a levered play on Boeing, was up 4%. No big surprise there. Northrop Grumman was up 2%, outperforming most of the defense stocks this week. But remember last week, it underperformed. The, you know, the, the earnings report wasn't well received by the street. Um, general, general Dynamics was roughly flat. Raytheon was up maybe about a percent and a half. Kind of, kind of those kind of moves. Uh, Huntington Ingalls reported this week, and, and their numbers were ahead of where the street was thinking. They are up five percent, so they are you know broadly the winner uh, this week. When you look at the the ten year yield, it's been floating around four. It's still at four. The VIX index is around thirteen, which is at the lower end of that you know call it twelve to twenty range that we've seen now for a long time. Um, a W two WTI crude was at seventy two. 
I'll give you one guess on Brent. Where is that vodka? Where's Brent? The WTI is 72. Where's Brent? Five dollars. Got it. 77. Boom. Right on top. <laughs> right. And that's that's where that's where it was this week. So, you know, I mean, all things considered, you know, there's some volatility, but it was broadly a pretty good week. Um, I, I think one of the things that you know, folks who you'll focus on our A and D world, you just have to bear in mind when you look at market performance, there's a couple big names that are really driving a lot of market performance across the market stuff that we don't tend to look at you know but you know the magnificent seven tesla meta alphabet amazon apple microsoft and nvidia are humongous names that really kind of drive overall market performance so they're a big piece of you know kind of view of the big market but you know i would say you know this week you know, to, to to roll it all up um, Arrow did better than defense, but eh, you know, all in all, it was kind of a you know, uh, uh, yeah, move with the market kind of week. Uh, Sash, uh, give us a sense on European markets and how the group performed and what the drivers uh, there uh, were, right? I mean, because in Washington, in the United States, we had Boeing really and HII were the two big companies uh, that reported uh, this week. Go ahead. Yeah, I'm, none of the European stocks have started to report yet. They run typically three and sometimes five weeks later than, than the US in their reporting cycle. So I'll still be at the company earnings sometime mid-March, which feels terribly late. Um, but, uh, you know, the European stocks didn't have a, a terribly exciting week. Um, the overall sector was up about a percent. That was that was driven by defence. And defence was, a, again, a really interesting thing. The three big Quoted defense stocks, BA Systems, Leonardo, Thales, were all flat slightly down. Uh, I mean, they were, you know, it was uh, a, a pretty weak performance, but the big performances came from the mid caps and particularly from the German mid caps. Rheinmetallland was up 4%, Hensholt was up 6%. And the theme there is uh, German defense spending, not just for Germany, but actually the degree to which Germany is pushing through contracts for, in particular, artillery ammunition, but also for air defence systems, which then get delivered uh, straight to Ukraine. And you, you remember, our listeners remember, Hensolt make the TRML for D radar, which is the key radar, not just for the RST air defence system, which seems to be performing very well in Ukraine, right. but the Ukrainians are increasingly buying extra ones of these radars and using them to integrate into other uh, air defence systems that they've been donated by other people. Um, the easiest hack for them, apparently, is to uh, put a TRML-4D uh, into an S-300 system, a former Russian system. That really raises the uh, performance of it. But, you know, I think you can expect Western systems that shouldn't be able to take other companies' radars to be being used by the Ukrainians, you know, with effectively a bit of bit of secret source there. So that, those have been the, that, you know, that's been the, the, the theme. Interestingly, you know, civil was um, uh, just up, but I mean, you have to use a microscope for it. Uh, Airbus um, was absolutely flat last week. So it's a classic thing of a uh, good week for Boeing. And I know we're going to talk about that later. Um, and it's taken a little bit of the uh, the wind out of the, uh, the sales of the Airbus share price, which has been pretty flat now at 149 euros since um, the uh, second week of uh, January. Uh, fascinating. And also, we also had the uh, $1.2 billion uh, uh, NATO ammunition contract last week uh, as well, right, which would play positively into the sentiment and what that means for uh, artillery shell makers. And I think it is fascinating how the Ukrainians are using a lot of this capability, um, whether the Boeing uh, Saab rocket-assisted small diameter bomb. 
uh, right, which the Ukrainians are beginning um, to uh, field. Uh, so I, I think actually the Ukraine war is most interesting in some respects for how a country can actually quickly integrate all sorts of very disparate capabilities um, to, 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 you know, I mean, the, the Ukrainians don't have a Navy, but they're exerting sea control. So more, more, more power to them. Um, yeah. And actually, sure. if I can just add, I mean, that, yeah, that, that's a really good point about the ground launched small diameter bomb, uh, the Boeing Saab system. It's a fantastic, it, it, it's a hack that enables countries that have got old stocks of MLRS rockets to bring them up to at least the most modern standard, if not better. It's a, it's a really elegant way to rejuvenate old stocks of rockets and give a 150 nautical mile, um, you know, very, very precise uh, guided capability. So uh, my suspicion will be that once the Ukrainians have shown that it works, and I suspect we'll see that imminently, it will uh, stimulate, a, you know, quite a lot of other European and probably countries around the world to think, you know, if we could do this with our stocks of uh, MLRS, we're not going to have to wait five years for Lockheed Martin to produce us some new GMRS rounds. Uh, and and gives you some nice penetrating capability as well because of uh, the bomb and the casing and the uh, physics of it, uh, which is which is kind of elegant uh, and interesting. Um, Richard, uh, let's uh, just we're going to get uh, talk about Boeing in a second and we'll go around the horn uh, on that. Uh, but I first wanted to get your take uh, on traffic. Right. Uh, Ron had a great note on this traffic up some 37 percent year over year. And yet fares are also lower and in some cases continuing to drop. Um, is this a chicken and egg dynamic? I mean, what kind of dynamic is this? Did they cut fares to get the more traffic or does more planes mean lower fares? What what exactly is happening here? Because I don't think I'm alone in trying to figure out what's happening here. Yeah, I think we all are. You know, I mean, it, it sort of mirrors the, uh, shall we say, immaculate disinflation you're seeing in the broader economy. It doesn't seem to make any sense, but it does seem to work somehow. My vague theory, you know, we started looking at this back a few years ago. Um, are there any good studies, reliable studies of elasticity in air travel demand? Uh, you know, you'd think there would be, right? I mean, airfare is hugely contentious. All this data from decade after decade of get travel growth. There isn't, there's really no data that, you know, ah, if you lower prices 3%, demand goes up 1% or down or up, or there's no data whatsoever. And so there's a lot of fear, right? So you've got these airlines saying, okay, this is a fragile recovery. There's a recession coming because everyone knew there was going to be a recession for some reason. <laughs> um, and they kept airfares pretty darn low despite tight capacity they could have done better um and guess what you know demand was there very strong like ron's note said absolutely it, this is a a strong economy and there is no relationship that can be proven in a strong economy between fair prices and demand it just goes up so they're probably kicking themselves right now in airline land saying damn, you know, we could have made some serious coin here, but we didn't because we were kind of afraid of a recession. Now, having said all that, there is no data. There's still no data. So if there is any kind of, you know, uh, any kind of downturn whatsoever, um, you know, we don't know how things would respond. So I, maybe some fear is warranted. But here we are in a market with tight capacity, courtesy of, you know, well, every the, the supply dynamic that kicked in that didn't keep up in the aftermath of the COVID-19 recovery. Um, and uh, 
you know, it again, they have an opportunity to raise fares if they feel courageous, both about the elasticity issue and the economy issue. We'll, we'll just see. It was uh, interesting that we had dem- demonstrated because some of us were flying at this when when we were at peak fare. And I think that they recognized, well, I mean, a lot of these seats were full. So, I mean, I, I guess we could charge that much money. And there are people dumb enough to pay it or desperate enough to pay it. <laughs> yeah. I mean, that's that's exactly it. And meanwhile, traffic is it's kind of noteworthy is still recovered everywhere 2019 or beyond, except for China and the U.S. That is, or not China and the U.S., but China internationally. So, you know, everyone's back. Everyone's flying. Growth is strong. The economy is strong. China decoupling is most provable from a data standpoint in terms of air travel, because it's still, I I think it's about 35% lower than it was at its peak. That is an extreme anomaly and and an interesting one because of that decoupling uh, dimension to it. Uh, Ron, uh, let me go to you and ask you, you were just in uh, Dublin uh, for uh, the big global uh, aircraft finance uh, conference. Uh, What were some of the takeaways and what were some of the trends uh, that you spotted while you were there? Yeah, so yeah. Let me let me just let one let me add one comment to to Richard. Um, my interpretation is a little bit different of kind of where the pricing is today. We're we're beyond like COVID's a thing in the mirror in most cases. You know, maybe not if you're in a elderly home or something. It's a little different, but outside of that, in the travel world, for sure, it's something in the distant mirror. And we're just normalizing back to kind of the the regular cadence of travel. Um, the airlines have pretty good, meaning sophisticated pricing systems that you know they're pricing seats up to the last second. So there is some sort of underlying dynamic driving this. I'm not all that surprised that ticket prices have come down some, just just because that kind of re- that post COVID revenge travel, whatever you want to call it, uh-huh. we're just getting back to normal travel, right? So you're gonna you're gonna have cyclicality in ticket pricing like you did before you know 2019 so anyway just two two cents on that um dublin was interesting very interesting um you know because you also flew there on an airbus a321 neo yeah so yeah so yeah so i flew there on uh, an airbus a320 neo um i was up front um uh and it was really nice to be honest with you um that that yeah that aircraft um given that it's what sash what is it maybe eight inches ten inches wider than a a 737 or 757 um, on a longer haul trip, that extra width in the fuselage really matters. I mean, you don't have a sense of maybe the the claustrophobicness, I don't know if that's the right word, of you do in a, in a smaller tube. And it was a really pleasant thing. I mean, I was so happy to do it. I mean, do it again, right? I mean, it was, it was fine. It was great. Um, so I, you can really kind of see the future. I mean, the future is now like, why wouldn't more airlines operate that airplane on those routes when the you know the direct operating cost and the operating cost per seat is so much less than a wide body it makes really no sense to operate wide bodies so given that what we're seeing with order books and what airlines are doing makes a ton of sense um now that kind of leads us to sort of you know dublin right so for those that don't know um you know, uh, this this week in dublin it happens every year it's i call it sort of the singularity of air finance because the uh, everybody on the planet involved with air finance you know, you know crashes in on dublin and um, uh, there's a, just a ton going on and you know it, it's it gives you a really good sense of aircraft finance markets and so on and so forth and really the, the big takeaway is there's just there's just not enough airplanes 
Now, if you're an aircraft lessor today, um, on one hand, it's really good because you can, you know, lease your aircraft, um, you know, the, the, the spread that you get over your financing costs, you're, you're a price giver now, you're not a price taker, right? You can lease your aircraft um, at really good lease rates because everybody needs planes, there's a shortage of airplanes, and that's going to last for a while because of uh, everything we've been talking about, you know, you know the, the big issues of Boeing, the not so big issues, but still issues at Airbus with regard to, with regard to the supply chain. Um, you're seeing, you know, demand for wide bodies come back. Um, so if you're an aircraft lessor, that piece of it's really cool. Um, if you're leasing engines, you're just, you couldn't be happier. You know, demand for engines is off the charts right now, particularly if you have any spare GTFs. I mean, the amount of money you can get for spare GTF today would just make you cry. Um, it's pretty remarkable. Um, now, that being said, on the other side, part of the aircraft leasing business is bringing in new equipment. That That's harder, right? I mean, there's just not a lot of new equipment to bring in. So, you know, on one hand, the kit that they have and the kit that they are bringing in, they can do very well with. It's just throttled back relative to the growth that they thought they would have or could have because, you know, they're as constrained as everybody else is. Um, but I would say broadly um, in, in Dublin, it was largely pretty, pretty darn optimistic. Um, so, yeah, I'll leave it there. Uh, Sash, Richard, you guys want to take a quick bite at this before we get to Boeing? Just to tie into uh, Ron's issues about sort of spare GTF engines, one of the interesting things I think was that the um, GTF consortium put in place a leasing program, and and so we're investing quite heavily in leasing engines, and a couple of the effectively the affiliates, so uh, an MCU led uh, leasing company as well, have been involved in this, and um, it, it's it's a very interesting case where they've been thinking about leasing engines very early on in the program rather than waiting until you get close to the to the first major overhaul and then and then got um you know deciding whether to put any capacity in and i'm pretty sure that the cfm uh leak will be the same that they've they've uh started stocking up on on lease engines although they clearly haven't had the demand that uh you know uh, the unfortunate gtf customers have richard yeah, I mean, the optimism, of course, is warranted because uh, assets are scarce and demand is strong. So, uh, <laughs> you know, and uh, people with assets are doing pretty good. Um, I, I could I just quickly turn back to uh, Ron's comments about the 321. I, too, have been flying across the Atlantic. It's funny, I don't think I ever flew across the Atlantic um, on a narrow body up until 2018 when I took a, believe it or not, Air Canada Max uh, and this past year, all I've done is fly on 321 Neos, and they've all been on smaller smaller carriers. And I wonder if this isn't going to change the dynamic and sort of restore the Aer Linguses and, and TAP. I took one TAP flight to Portugal right. uh, to help, you know, because it, it doesn't seem like the, the big guys, you know, are quite getting this <laughs> in terms right. of a significant step change in cost reduction and uh, consumer convenience because they don't have to change in goddamn Charles de Gaulle or Frankfurt or, or Heathrow. And it, you know, you're not seeing this from Air France or, or Lufthansa or United. You're seeing it from, you know, again, TAP, Aer Lingus, and probably soon, uh, whatever carrier survives in Italy for them to make some money. You can't help but wonder whether there's some kind of, uh, if not a revolution, but a significant transformation of the transatlantic uh, air travel system as a consequence. Couldn't agree with you uh, more. Can I add Aero? one thing? Margaret, just quickly. Yeah, sure, sure. Go ahead. 
Yeah. So, I mean, I just, I was on uh, Aaron Lingus um, and it was really, it was really great. Um, right. Now um, the airline that I think really spearheaded doing transatlantic with narrow bodies, to be fair, was United with seven fives. Uh, and they do have a bunch of A321 LRs and I believe some XLRs on order to replace those seven fives. So right. part of United's plan is to do that. Right. And just to, you know, to replace some of the seven fives they have, which are, really, you know, quite, you know, long in the tooth uh, at, at this point. And I think it's been in the press. I know it's been in the press that, you know, there there could be some thing in the works right now with uh, because of the delay on the Dash 10s that uh, United would be bringing in uh, more 321s. And um, for sure, they would be the LR variant that would be capable of doing transatlantic. Yeah, if I could um, just add, you know, it was Continental, of course, that did the, you know, seven five to from Newark to Berlin and all that, uh, and that, of course, you know, continued with that. But I, I took the Max Ten as to not be a transatlantic machine, of course, and therefore the three twenty one Neos under negotiation is just being for upgaged domestic routes. A point I was going to make on this is, um, I know more and more people who are flying Aer Lingus uh, transatlantically, uh, passing over BA. They go through Shannon. They go through U.S. Customs at Shannon. Makes life easier when they arrive uh, at Dulles. Uh, and I know more and more people who are flying actually Icelandic carriers and other carriers, as you said, Richard, uh, because it's direct. They're cheaper. The quality of service is good. And they're not paying $10,000 for that ticket uh, that they would on one of the majors, uh, right? So. It's it's an interesting dynamic to me that all of these United flyers, all of these Delta flyers, and others are now starting to shift to all of these smaller airlines because they're like, I, you know, I'm I I got this ticket for twenty five hundred bucks uh, instead of you know multiple times that perhaps uh, to go on one of the bigs. So I think it is going to be interesting, and it is going to be an interesting driver in terms of how the market evolves. Um, all right, Boeing, run start us off. Uh, we have been uh, tough, uh, but I think fair on the company and what we expected and what we hoped that they would say. Um, did we hear what we needed to hear from Boeing management? Um, because there are some who think that they are at least rhetorically going in the right direction. There was contrition. They suspended guidance. They withdrew the Max 7 uh, de-icing uh, time-limited exemption. What what was your sense in the in the takeaways because from a free cash flow standpoint and otherwise they they had a pretty gangbuster quarter yeah the numbers the the number in the quarter numbers in the quarter were um were good right i mean uh and i think that you know that was reflected in the stock move uh this week that day in particular um you know did what did we hear on the call not a lot to be honest with you um and when when i think about the q a period um nobody would save myself asked a question that was challenging at all. Um, so I don't, I don't, I think the analyst community sort of failed there. Um, and, but I mean, you're, you're hundred percent right. I mean, pulling back on the dash seven and just sorting that issue out um, in which implies sorting out everything on the dash 10 too. Um, you know, bringing these airplanes forward with, you know, who can argue that that's not the right move. Um, suspending the guidance was the right move. I mean, because given all the uncertainty here, how could they possibly give a guide that would have any certainty around it? Because there's certain things out of their control right now. So to, to be fair, I mean, so that was good. Um, and you know, the, not having the, we didn't make a mistake, you know, that the, of course, I mean, first thing of, you know, on the path of fixing something is admitting, yeah, all right, we, 
we did mess this up. Um, so yeah, on that front, I think that was all the right stuff. Now, To be fair, because our investigations going on and so on and so forth, they're, they're, they're limited in what they can say, right? So, I mean, what could you fully expect that they would say? You have to put some, how can I say, some filter on it because of the, the situation they're in. But, I mean, they, they didn't say a heck of a lot, to be to be candid. That's a little disappointing, right. but I can understand why they couldn't, to be fair, if, if that all makes sense. Uh, Sash, uh, did we hear the right messages richard did we hear the right messages what are you guys looking for yeah, I, them to do go ahead no i think we heard the right messages which is which we said last week should have been we can't say a great deal at the moment we're focusing on safety period um so actually i was i was very encouraged uh, i think that was that was really good keep focusing on safety they've got to do that and quality the two are um you, you can't tease the two apart frankly um you know because boeing is still uh, you know they they cannot have another incident so keep focusing on it don't just sort of let up at the first quarter because um uh you know because they're under uh pressure from you know some lazy investors or something who, who just like to be given fed fed the numbers for this year and next year you know they, they've got to focus keep focusing on this but i was i was very very encouraged um the next thing that they have got to focus on, but this might be six, nine, 12, 15 months away, is that there will be another program and it's increasingly likely to come, you know, a brand new narrow body. Or it's increasingly likely to come at, with, at a timing that does not suit Boeing. I, I had thought up to recently that um, Boeing would need to initiate the next narrow body um, development cycle because the MAX was um, underperforming and hence they would need something new so that they were they could start out competing with with Airbus. I think what would worry me as a Boeing director is if Airbus just decided to launch a new narrowbody, um, not because the A321neo is not a fantastic aircraft, because it clearly is, but because it will it won't get them close enough to the companies and Europe's net zero targets. And hence what they'll do is they'll up the anti sooner. And I think that I want to hear Boeing keep focusing on quality. Never mind about the financials. You know, the financials are perfectly good. Just just let them be. If you keep focusing on quality, you will deliver good financials. But now start thinking about uh, the next generation uh, and it happening sooner than you'd like. Um, just uh, really quickly, Richard, I'm going to go to you. But first, a quick word from our sponsors. The Defense and Aerospace Report and its family of publications is brought to you by Bell, HII, General Atomics Aeronautical Systems, GE Aerospace, Leonardo DRS, and American Rheinmetall. Richard? Well, so much to say. You know, first of all, rhetorically, yes, absolutely the right thing. I don't think they get credit for withdrawing the de-icing certification exemption because they were asked to do so by Congress. <laughs> I mean, right. That doesn't qualify as a proactive uh, move. Uh, but in terms of, yes, suspending guidance and uh, saying we're going to focus on safety, sure. But this has never been, you know, they, be, they never didn't say the right thing. It was just a question of their actions, actually paying attention to both the labor uh, for the workforce, the, the supplier community, and actually visiting factories and being part of the industry rather than just being a bunch of money managers <laughs> staying in some sequestered spot. I, this is... Yeah. I, I don't think you get credit for words when I hear them or see them visiting, you know, I don't know, everywhere from Renton to Everett and talking with people on the line and then going to Spirit Aerosystems doing the same high profile 
you know, a little, a little goes a long way. Just showing up and talking to a few people would be fantastic. It would show a commitment to, you know, talking to people directly saying, are you getting the resources needed to do your job properly? Are there adequate levels of oversight? Are the processes in place to make the system safer? What do you think we did wrong? You know, that kind of thing. They're not going to be doing that. I mean, they don't seem to be doing that. If they do that, I will be the first to be a cheerleader because um, they still have some really great people, some great products, some great technologies. All they need is to restore that link between the sequestered leadership and the people actually engaged in the core business of building planes. There seems to have been some progress on the defense side a little bit here and there, uh, although, you know, the numbers are still pretty grim. Um, but we need to see something more systematic and certainly the commercial side. Absolutely. And, I, don't, I you know, with all due respect, Sash, I don't really see any prospect whatsoever of them doing a new jet as long as Calhoun and company are in charge. Not even vaguely. Uh, I, you know, it would be great if they were to, or if their actions were to be determined by a competitor. But, you know, frankly, November 2022, Calhoun says we're not going to be doing a new jet. And I, I also disagree with you, Sash, with, uh, you know, with that one, which I almost never do. But the 321neo is not a great jet. It's an okay jet. It's in the right place at the right time. And after that November 2022 comment by Calhoun, you a little fun fact, 1,300 321neo orders last year. <laughs> Everyone said, geez, thanks for the guidance. I guess we'd better get in line for this perfectly mediocre A321neo jet because you're not going to be competing with it. I mean, there is no sign whatsoever of this company building a new product as long as these folks are in charge, period. Um, I, uh, I I think it's a little bit better than a perfectly mediocre airplane, but your point is uh, is uh, well uh, taken. And the other thing that I would add, um, we all know a lot of people uh, at Boeing. Um, first, I think that Ted Colbert, uh, who is uh, trying to execute a turnaround and is making some successes, needs the resources in order to be able to do that. I think it's important to put that on the record. Second, um, we know a lot of people across the company and yes, uh, Richard, the public visits would be great, but actually it would be more encouraging for us from all of the people that we know to hear, hey, you know, the senior management was showing up. We saw them. We heard from them in ways that perhaps we don't. It doesn't have to be, sure. you know, his majesty, a visit from his majesty that gets publicized. It's the quiet stuff that will indicate to us that actually maybe they're taking us a little more seriously. We've got a lot more stuff to discuss, but Ron, uh, final point on this before we uh, move on to a slight, uh, well, actually, no, uh, I have a, another follow-up to ask you. Go ahead. Yeah, I mean, just a, maybe two two more points. Um, one, hopefully, you know, the, this period where you, know, the, you, you, you have a delayed effectively the certification period uh, for Dash 7 and Dash 10 will give the company ample time to get their ducks in order. To Richard's point, action speaks louder than words, so we have to see action. But this does give them some time to do that. And really, the only hope, the only chance they have of getting to a higher production rate on 737s say 50 per month, which they've talked about, or higher, um, is they have to do that. I mean, they, they, they can't have an unstable production system that is producing aircraft that have, you know, quote unquote, quality escapes and get to that rate. So they, they have to sort this out. So 
you know, uh, on one hand, hopefully this is um, a, a period where they can do that um, and not have the pressure of everybody looking at, well, what's this quarter be? What's this quarter going to be by removing that that piece of, you know, the financial target? Uh, and then the other piece, and this is sort of interesting, right? And, and this came up in Dublin. Um, and, and and maybe, you know, I was in, a, in an international community and, you know, this, this was said by um, the, the, the leader of a, of a big aircraft lessor. Um, and basically, you don't want to bet against the U.S. And by kind of betting against Boeing, you're betting against the U.S. and that somehow, some way, this will get fixed. You know, kind of with or without this management team, it's going to get fixed, right? So I thought that was an interesting perspective. That is kind of an American. You just, you don't, I just don't naturally think about that. So, anyway, um, yeah. Really quickly, explain uh, to the audience because some people uh, are wondering, like the icing issue with the seven thirty seven uh, with with the uh, Max seven. What is that all about? And one dedicated listener pointed out, right? Why not? actually install a proper engine indicating and crew alerting system on the 737 they have that on the p8 now why not actually go that extra step right what's what's the issue or are they sort of getting there right ron i guess your point would be with all the other stuff that they're doing it eventually that system comes on the airplane as a retrofit anyway walk us through what the issue is because there are a lot of people who are wondering wait a minute 737 isn't exactly a spring chicken what's up with de-icing with that airplane yeah so then the cell on the Max is a different one than the, the previous version, right. obviously a different engine. Um, there's composite material in it. Uh, and the de-icing system and then the cell, if it's on for more than five minutes in a you know, kind of specific atmospheric condition where it's very dry, um, you can, I guess, effectively melt a piece of the nacelle that can break off and go into the engine or fall off and hit the airframe and can you know, right. obviously lead to bad things. You have to, under those certain atmospheric conditions, you can only have it on for five minutes and you have to shut it off. Um, the fear is, and the pilot has to shut it off. There's not an automatic system that does right. it. So the fear is that they'll forget. Um, and if you talk to some pilots, it's not common, but it's not uncommon that they would occasionally forget. And the way it was described right. to me, it's sort of like the rear defrost in your car. Sometimes right. you leave it on when you don't need it. Um, and, and I think that's the fear now you know what kind of makes this all more complicated because everything is complicated with airplane is that the dash eight and dash nine were given you know the extension to get it fixed so basically all of this was going to be sorted out essentially on the on the 10 it all had to get fixed and then retrofitted backwards from the 10 onto everything else so the 10 will have uh, a crew alert system, like a light version of it, not a full one, but you know, kind of something. It'll have that. You know, the the, the nacelle thing should be fixed at you know at some point here, um, and it has a, has a synthetic um, angle attack sensor too, right? That was a deal that right. uh, was made with um, uh, the European authority, and then all that had to be backwards retrofit on all the other ones. So essentially, what's happening here is on the dash seven you're just going to wait to get it to get it done and then they'll go into service with a fixed nacelle system or, or anti-ice system uh, and then on on the same thing will happen with the 10 but the 10 is roughly a year behind the seven at least it was we'll see where the, all this goes um, but in the end you end up with a whole fleet of 737s globally that ends up getting retrofit back to a spec that will have 
everything right. So why not just do that at first? Because that all takes time. In the meantime, you wouldn't be delivering right. airplanes. So it's a way to get airplanes into service quicker than you normally would. Sash, you've got your hand up. Go ahead. Yeah, I was just going to follow up on that um, comment from Dublin uh, about, uh, you know, if you're betting against Boeing, you're betting against the USA, and that's not a good idea. It's a great soundbite. I just don't buy that. As a country, the USA has no industrial policy, no industrial strategy when it comes to Boeing. And every time we've talked about this on this podcast over how many years, uh, you know, the DOD doesn't have an industrial strategy, so it doesn't think about allocating defense orders according well, to the it companies does, that need stuff rather than... It does It does yeah, now. Right? Uh, you certainly don't have industrial an industrial strategy. Well, you certainly don't have an industrial strategy for civil. The US government is not a stakeholder or is not a shareholder in Boeing. And, um, yeah, you know, you, you bail it out occasionally. But the difference between being a, being a shareholder, as both France and Germany are, and having a clear vision, or, or indeed as the Chinese government is with COMAC, and having a very clear vision for where you want your civil aerospace company uh, to be in 10, 25 years, compared to private sector Boeing, couldn't be wider to me. I'd be, you know, I'd be delighted to see it. I'm all in favor of industrial strategies. I'm all in favor of proper state, you know, stakeholder involvement in what are systemically important companies. But until that happens, the argument that you're betting against the U.S. when in civil aerospace terms you're betting against Boeing doesn't is a very weak one. IMA. Um, I would, I would. Uh, one of the other challenges here is we have not heard enough from the department expressing alarm at where Boeing is overall. I think they have a tendency of thinking about this as it's a 737 problem. And, you know, they're having challenges on 46 and on T7, as opposed to organismically looking at the, the, the condition the company is in and where that ends up putting us uh, in a little bit of time. And I hope, you know, Richard, this uh, program and all the comments that all of us have been making on all of this for a while, as well as that great piece you just recently uh, did, is going to focus people's attention, uh, you know, in the government that, that this is a very big problem staring them in the face uh, at a time when they would like to have some more competition at, at the end of the day. You, you wanted to add something, Richard? Yeah, sorry. I, I was just going to add the rather flip comment that the one com you know commonality between Boeing and the U.S. is that great Churchill quote about they can usually be counted upon to do the right thing after they've exhausted all the other possibilities. Uh, sadly. Um, OK, we're running low on time. Uh, Sash, you get a, a second uh, bite at the apple, $50 billion in uh, European aid. There were those who uh, felt that Viktor Orban, uh, who has acted as uh, Vladimir Putin's stooge, was going to uh, delay that uh, further. It looks like he is the last vote to allow Sweden uh, to uh, uh, join uh, NATO. And he has said that if Turkey approves it, he will approve it. We'll see how important was uh, the approval of at least this economic aid. And what's on the horizon for more military aid to Ukraine as the United States continues to dither with this? From the point of view of the Ukrainians, and I you know, personally, I think uh, it's very, very good news that the EU has finally talked Viktor Orban down from his sort of multiple uh, series of uh, vetoes uh, against Sweden's NATO membership, funding for Ukraine uh, and uh, everything else in between. Um, 50 billion, predominantly um, economic aid, don't you know, don't knock that. Actually, this is what is keeping the uh, Ukrainian government going. And an awful lot of that uh, economic aid then comes through in terms of funding the, the 
the, the defense ministry, the defense infrastructure. And some of that is then used for munitions purchases as well. Uh, but, I, you know, this is uh, a must be a huge relief to Ukraine. It, it keeps Ukraine going economically, uh, at least for another year or so. And there is coming up behind it a lot of focus by European countries on whether the supply, particularly of uh, artillery and ammunition, but also air defence uh, systems, is anything like as much as it should be. The Czech government has specifically highlighted that and is suggesting that Europe, if, if Europe can't build manufacture shells fast enough, then uh, we should go out and buy on the open market. And that tends to mean um, uh, South Korea is the most obvious uh, seller of uh, artillery ammunition. So yeah, it, it's this is very, very good. But remember, this is happening after a two, three month period when US aid stopped, European aid uh, came to a, a near standstill. Um, so it's, uh, you know, the Ukrainians are going to be catching breath for, for some time before they get back to a, a, you know, slightly more stable level in terms of both the economy and, and militarily. And I think militarily, it's going to be a, a pretty tough summer, uh, unless the Europeans up the ante even further. Richard, uh, you get uh, sort of the last word in the program. Uh, Turkey, uh, Washington made good on its promise that if Ankara approved uh, uh, Sweden's uh, membership in NATO, uh, those F-16s that have been long delayed uh, would be uh, approved and sent over. Uh, and at the same time, the United States also approved an, uh, 40 uh, F-35s uh, for uh, Greece, maintaining that qualitative equation that we have historically used uh, uh, between uh, uh, Turkey and Greece. Uh, and the Greeks also got, you know, I felt like uh, the, the joke, and we joked on the Air Power podcast, uh, and Ron Kyle Clark of Beta Technologies was on uh, and did just an absolutely uh, terrific uh, job. Um, uh, and anyway, so we joke that, you know, for, with every 20 F-35s, you get a Hercules thrown in, even though it's an H model. What, what does this sort of tell us, you know, more broadly? I mean, I guess the Indonesians picked up two Suhoys, but I think that's less newsworthy. Anyway, give us give us your sense, especially on the F-35 side of things, what what this order means uh, and and ties into last year's, you know, orders, deliveries, et cetera. Yeah, there's a lot going on, of course. But first of all, you know, is it really a qualitative commonality or, or, or similarity? I mean, you've got this history of Greece and Turkey both operating F-16s, um, possibly the only place in the world where F-16 operators might conceivably have a conflict between them. And uh, and yet uh, now you've got F-35s and F-16s. You know, basically Erdogan's rule has been pretty disastrous for their air force. They're the only power in the region without, uh, up until now, a plan to get an AESA radar in the air, which is a, a big discriminator. Uh, and now they'll- They're going to have the con and it's all going to be fine. They are going yeah, to jump to right. a sixth generation capability right. like that, Richard. That's right. If you they can naysayer. get inside- if, if they can get it inside a proper sixth generation jet, it will function as a sixth generation jet. You know, I mean, it's it's a serious, it's it's a Potemkin village air, air power roadmap. Uh, but we, at least with F-16s, 40 of them coming and a rebuild program for some of the early ones, presumably to the, to the Viper standard, uh, that'll help an awful lot. So this is a good bargain. I think the administration, the Biden administration played it pretty well in terms of, okay, you let Sweden in, you get some F-16s and I do some of the damage you've done to your air force. Now the F-35 standpoint, great news for Greece. They've made a great recovery from the, you know, the horrors of 2008 when they couldn't afford anything for their military. The one small problem is the F-35 line. It's kind of bizarre 
that we're getting guidance about an equally bad year next year from a delivery standpoint because of TR3 block four delays, and yet absolutely no guidance as to whether they can make this good. You know, it stands to reason that they're building all these aircraft, creating this monster parking lot full of jets that's now like the sixth largest air force that we're functioning. Uh, you'd think that you could get them upgraded to TR3 uh, practice while get you know, TR3 standard while simultaneously building new ones. And then the following year get to, I don't know, 200 or something, but there's no guidance of the sort. So you got to wonder whether, you know, Greece and, and everyone else who signed over the past 18 to 24 months is going to get their F-35s, you know, before 2029 or 2030. It's just not a good supply situation. Guys, thanks very much. Really appreciate it. As always, hope you guys have a great weekend or what's left of the weekend and a great week and look forward to having you back on again next week. And thanks very much uh, to our audience and a reminder to check out our award-winning weekly podcasts, Cavus Ships, hosted by our very own Chris Cavus and Chris Cervello and sponsored by HII and GE Aerospace, who clear the fog on Naval and Maritime Matters. The Downlink with Laura Winter, who takes a thoughtful look at all things space and our Air Power podcast sponsored by GE Aerospace that I co-host uh, with J.J. Gertler. Tune in again tomorrow for our Look Ahead program sponsored by HII. Till then, uh, have a great day and we'll see you again soon. Thanks very much.